Good morning, good morning. What a privilege, right? We get to go through uh, one of the Psalms today, Psalm 34. Uh, earlier, one of the members asked, like, man, Psalm 34, I'm excited about it. I look right back at her and say, I'm excited too. And so we get the privilege of going through um, this psalm. I would say this psalm, um, the psalms in general, have been my, my counselor since I started my walk with the Lord. The psalms have been my counselor. They, they've taught me what it looks like to cry out to the Lord. They, they've taught me what it looks like to, to praise the Lord. They've taught me what it looks like to be honest with the Lord, to be vulnerable with him. Dane Ortland he reminds us that the Psalms, they are uniquely suited to foster communion uh, with God, and it gives voice to our hearts. This is consistent with what Donald Whitney says as well. Here's what he says about the Psalms. It is as though God said to his people, I want you to praise me, but you don't know how to praise me. I want you to praise me not because I'm an egomaniac, but because you will praise that which you prize the most. And there's nothing of greater worth to you than I. Therefore, since I want you to praise me, and it is good for you to praise me, but since you don't know how to praise me, here are the words I want you to use. And Psalm 34 does that. It, it, it gives us a model for what it looks like to exalt God and to invite others to exalt God with you. This was a psalm that was written by King David during a very hard time. You can see this experience in 1 Samuel uh, 21. Uh, Saul was pursuing David, and, and he was on the run from Saul to preserve his life. Can you imagine just the emotional distress that David must be feeling? He, here's somebody that you once respected, and he's chasing after you. Let's make it more personal. This is his father-in-law that's trying to kill him. That's some serious in-law problem. And, and just think about the, the distress that David must have been going through. He flees Saul. He acquires Goliath's sword. He goes to Gath. Gath is his enemy's hometown. It, it conveys how desperate David was. And the Bible tells us that David was much afraid. And as a result of being much afraid, David pretended to be insane. He started to scratch the door and, and started to allow saliva to come down his beard. He was so afraid. This was a hard time for David. So it would seem Psalm 34 came after that incident. And when David left that incident, he went to what is called the cave of Adullam. And while he was there, 400 men who were in debt, who were in distress, came to him. And it's likely that he penned Psalm 34 during that time. And it's likely that he may have been writing it for those men, those 400 men. Psalm 34 is a psalm of praise. And we understand as we walk through the psalm, David, how did you get to this place of praise? How did you get to the point where you're saying, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together? As we go through the psalm, we're going to understand how he got to that place of praise. First, we see David, he's remembering the salvation of the Lord. See, verses 4 through 7, he says, I sought the Lord, and the Lord heard me. This poor man cried. He, he's sharing his testimony. He's remembering the salvation of the Lord. And we see David not just remembering, he, he's responding to the salvation of the Lord. 
And he responds in three ways. The first way, he magnifies the character of the Lord. He implicitly and explicitly showcasing who God is. That's his first step. And the second thing is, he's like, I'm going to exalt the Lord personally. I magnify my soul, boast in the Lord. And then he wants to exalt collectively. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. I could do this by myself, but let's do it together. Let's do it together. So like David, we must be diligent in remembering the salvation of the Lord and responding to the salvation of the Lord. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us as we go through this passage. Dear God, we thank you. Uh, We are so grateful for who you are. Uh, Thank you for your word. Your word is, is sweeter than honey. And God, my desire is that every soul hearing this, Lord, would walk out of here with a clearer understanding of who you are. Uh, Would you do that work, please? And thank you for allowing me to join you in that work. Amen. You ever started watching a movie and you notice that the the opening scene is actually the, the end of the film? You're like, okay, we just started a movie like this? And so, for example, right, Slumdog Millionaire. Right, you have the main character, Jamal, who is uh, one question away from winning 20 million rupees. And you hear the, the whose line is it anyway, do, 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 making it really intense. You're like, what is going on here? And so as you continue to watch the movie, it unfolds and shows you how he got to that, got to that point. This psalm has a similar vibe, right? In verses 1 through 3, David has this boisterous praise. It's lively. It's exalting. You're like, David, wait, wait, wait. How did you get to this place of praise? It's so inspiring. And David, he's going to answer this question for us. He's going to take us on a journey. David starts by saying that he will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Not just sometimes or or once a week or every other week. He says at all times. David wants to be intentional about this. He's essentially saying that there's always something going on that showcases who God is and shows that this God is worthy of praise. We know that David, right, he wasn't always feeling this way, right? From the context that we read, he was much afraid. So even for David, he was, if anything, aspiring to do this. And this is not something that's going to happen naturally. It's the trials that David went through that got him to this place. You see, the trials that David went through, it strengthened his vision of how glorious God is. It brought him to a place of saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. And that's what the trials are for. They are are in place to bring us to see the glory of God. I remember several months ago, back in September, I I had an asthma attack. And my asthma has been dormant uh, for nearly 20 years. And it was a Friday night leading to a Saturday morning. And I'm trying to, it was around 1 o'clock, I'm trying to catch my breath. And I'm like, what is this? I wake my wife up and I said, honey, this, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned right now. And we, I ended up going to the emergency room, uh, got antibiotics. Uh, my lungs were inflamed. And I've never been so happy to get an inhaler. I'm so encouraged. That was a Friday going into a Saturday. Come to the gathering on Sunday. 
And one of the first songs we sing, it's your breath <laughs> in our lungs. <laughs> so we pour out our prayer. I lost it. I, I was bawling. And so that asthma attack and the reminder of that song, it, it taught me to be thankful for every breath. My goodness, it don't need much for me to praise him. I'm breathing right now. I don't have to. <laughs> I'm thankful for the Lord for that. And he taught me that in that simple thing. My boys are looking at me, Daddy, okay? <laughs> I'm having a great time, son. <laughs> and so think about that the pain that we experience represents God's curriculum for training us to see him clearly. You know what it does? It, it shows us the flaws of the pursuits and the desires that rival him. He said, let me show you how ridiculous that thing is that you're relying on. Oh, suffering is training. It's training. And David continues, he says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. He's clarifying what he's boasting about. It reminds us of Jeremiah 9, right? Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in the wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We are to boast about the character and the works of the Lord. Fam, take inventory. Ask yourself, what has he done for you? Take the time and reflect on that. And if you're a believer, I'm going to answer that question for you. Because Romans tells us that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the best gift. I, I can look at my brother, look at my sister. You got the best gift, I got the best gift. You got the best gift, I got the best gift. And so when, when that ugly thing of jealousy tries to emerge, you know what it's saying? It's saying that you don't understand that the best gift is the best gift. And so when it happens, don't condemn yourself. It's an indicator to run to God, teach me to see the best gift as the best gift. Reflect and boast about the best gift. Tell folks, I'm a child of God. I'm united with them. I've been bought with a price. I'm set. I'm good. I'm set for eternity. <laughs> What's going to mess with me? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Believe it. Reflect on it. Boast about it. Be obsessed with this truth. Be obsessed about it. And we see David's soul, he's primarily concerned about making much of the Lord. Not his own ambitions. My singular focus is to make much of God. He says, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. He's still in that posture of fixating on the Lord. He has this intense gaze on the Lord and what the Lord has done, and he wants to magnify the Lord. And see, God is not becoming great when we magnify him. No, 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 no. He's already great. We're bringing attention to his greatness, and this is what David's doing. And he said, I don't want to do, I could do this by myself, but I don't want to do this by myself. Please join me in this campaign to magnify the Lord. And let us exalt his name together. Saints, you have an opportunity to do this every Sunday as you gather. You may be a David who is in that posture of exalting the Lord. And there may be a brother or sister 
who may have had a hard week. But as you sing, your singing is an invitation for them to come and exalt the Lord. That time I had the asthma attack, it, it was the singing that reminded me to pick my head up and look at the Lord. So just think about that as we sing. It's a privilege that we get to sing every Sunday with each other. So let us be known as people who enjoy exalting the Lord. We get to verse 4, and David takes a transition, it would seem. And so what is going on in verse 4? In verse 4, he is saying, he's giving his testimony of, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He's trying to point out how he got to verses 1 through 3. He's telling the readers that I went to the Lord with these fears. And one of the ways we seek the Lord is going to him with our questions and our concerns. And this is what David did. He had these legitimate fears. And like David, we need to run to God intensely. He, he, he cares intensely about your soul. How do I know this? Look at the cross. The cross shows that Jesus gave up his precious life, submitted it to a cursed death for wretched and sinful people. He's committed to his people, and we see that with David. He delivered David from his fears. What an experience that must have been. You, you, you have these fears, you, you call out to the Lord, and these fears begin to subside. What an experience that must have been. He continues in verse 5, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. What does it mean to look to God? It means to consider him, behold him, gaze on God. David is affirming to the readers that it is good to look to God. In this statement, it's consistent with the theme in verses 4 through 7. If you look at it, verse 4, what did he do? He wasn't just focused on the problems. He was focusing on God. He said in verse 4, I saw the Lord, those who look to him. This poor man cried. Who did he cry to? To the Lord, those who fear him. David affirms in his words and in his life that it is good to look to God. You see, the effect of looking to God is radiant. There seems to be a, a cheerfulness that comes when we are fixated on the Lord. It doesn't mean that your, your circumstances will change. It doesn't mean, though, that your countenance will change. As you behold the Lord and see him rightly, it positively affects us. John Owens helps us with this. Here's what he says. When we diligently contemplate the glory of Christ, we begin to see how slight and inconsiderable are the things that cause our troubles and distresses, for they all grow on the root of an overvaluation of temporal things. We must arrive at a fixed judgment that all things in this life are transitory and perishing, affecting only the outward man or body. As you truly behold God, you are consumed about who God is, then you are more dreadful of the problems and the circumstances. You become more enamored about the glory of God than you are discouraged by the problem. David continues with his testimony. He said, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and delivered him, heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. David is making the Lord aware of his emotional distress. There was this honesty and vulnerability, vulnerability between David and the Lord. The Lord was a safe place for him. 
The circumstances were affecting him in a very real and hard way, and he took it to the Lord. There seems to be a confidence that emerges when we know that the Lord hears us. Look at Psalm 6. It says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Look at verse 8. We're told that the Lord heard him. There seems to be a change of tone in this psalm when David was confident that the Lord heard him. There, there seemed to be this increased confidence that righteousness is going to triumph over evil when you believe that the Lord hears you and will do something. You think about it, right? If there was an intruder coming into your house, you, you may not call your best friend at that moment. You're likely to call 911. And the reason being is that you have confidence that 911, someone will hear you and that they're going to send the support that's needed to take care of this intruder. It's almost like a default. It's the same thing with our kids. They, they come to us because there's some degree of confidence that mommy and daddy will hear me and they will do something. You see, your decision to go to God is going to be dependent on how much you believe that he hears you and that he will do something. And the Lord not only heard David, but he saved him. God's power and protective care is on display in this deliverance. This deliverance gives us a clearer understanding of the ability of the Lord. The troubles were big for David, no lie. But this deliverance was an opportunity to showcase David and even us of just who God is. And this is precisely one of the things that David wants to do as he responds to his salvation. He has an agenda. He desires for people to see God clearly. He wants to magnify the Lord. He wants to show you the qualities of who this God is. Look at verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, and blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Such language that David uses. He wants his audience to know that he has experienced the goodness of the Lord, and he has come to the conclusion that the Lord is good. And he's saying, I don't want you to just learn about it secondhand. I want you to experience it for yourself. Why don't you go and conduct your own evaluation, and I have confidence that you're going to come to the conclusion that the Lord is good. See, as an official foodie, the concept of taste and see really resonates with me. You know, here, here's the reality, right? You, your taste buds experience something it's never experienced before. It's amazing. You, you don't just say, oh, it was good. No, 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 no. I, I need to understand what was the proportion of saltiness? What was the proportion of sweetness? And did they interact with each other well? I want to understand your experience of what you went through. My wife and I went with some good friends to um, a restaurant. The, uh, the service was impeccable. The, the uh, appetizer, wonderful. The entree, my goodness. And then the dessert was delightful. 
And there were times we're just eating like, mmm, mmm. I mean, that's all you heard during that dinner. And, and, and I tell you, I tell you no lie, we pray twice. We, 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 we thank the Lord in the beginning and for this experience. Why would I not thank him? I've never experienced this before. And I'm laying in the bed that night, and I look at my bride. I said, baby, that was some good food, wasn't it? And, and I lie to you not, I wake up the next morning, and I look at my baby, and I said, baby, that was some good food, wasn't it? And I had every confidence to come here on Sunday, and I told as much as the people I can tell about this experience, because I want you to experience it. Why would I hold that back from you? I want you to have that experience. You entered into an experience and an interaction, interaction with something that's amazing, mind-blowing. What is this? I must tell you about it. David is saying, I sought the Lord. He answered me. I needed deliverance. He delivered me. I cried. The Lord heard me and saved me. Why would I hold that back? Why? It makes no sense. I, don't, I want you to learn about who this God is. You can seek the Lord. You can cry to the Lord. The Lord answers. The Lord delivers. The Lord saves. There may be some of you in here who want to cry right now. The Lord can take it. You can cry to him right now. If it's been a hard season, you can cry to the Lord. The Lord hears you. The Lord saves and the Lord delivers. What a mighty God we serve. What? It's my God, our God, our King. Praise him. Man, David is on a campaign. He wants the people of God to see God rightly. He says, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He's slowly on his campaign, dripping a little bit of who this God is. The Lord is supremely satisfying. The Lord gives good things. The Lord knows what we need. We respond with awe. What a God. All throughout the psalm, he's talking about his experience with the Lord. He's explicitly and implicitly declaring who God is. He wants to magnify the character of the Lord. He wants to showcase who God is. Let's look at this exercise, verses 1 through 3. He says the Lord is worthy of our praise, implicitly, right? The Lord is accessible. The Lord answers. The Lord is a deliverer. The Lord is more powerful than all my fears. The Lord is attentive to the cries of the people. The Lord is more powerful than any trouble I can be in. The Lord is a protector. The Lord is good. The Lord is a refuge. The Lord desires to bless. The Lord is supremely satisfying. The Lord gives good things. The Lord knows what we need. This is verse 10. (laughs) He wants to bring clarity to who this God is. And David understands the connection between knowing God and exalting God. You can't exalt what you don't know. He he recognized that the more you understood about the glory of God, the qualities of God, the characteristics of this God, the more you're likely to exalt him. And all throughout the psalm, David is explaining his own journey of how he came to exalt God. And he's on a campaign to helping others exalt God. He, he has the vision in mind of what he's trying to do. You, you remember the start of this praise, he, the psalm, he says, I will bless the Lord. His praise will be in my mouth. My soul makes us boast in the Lord. And then in verse 8, oh, taste and see. David is exalting and he wants others to do the same. He understands his own journey of how he came to exalt the Lord. And the prerequisite there is learning about who God is. 
He wants to teach them about the Lord. He knows they won't exalt what they don't know. And to address this, David's offering several descriptions of who God is. And the rest of this psalm, verses 11 through 22, captures his effort in doing this. Look at verse 11. He says, Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. David is declaring his intentions. I'm going to teach you about the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord throughout the scriptures is a fascinating thing. We know it's a good thing. Look at what Moses wrote in Exodus about this. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And Moses points out that there's a, a right fear of God and a sinful fear of God. You see, what we see in James 2, the fear of the demons, they, they, they believe, they know, and they shudder. We see in Genesis 3 with, with uh, Adam, he ran away uh, from God. But there's a fear that is desirable and honors the Lord. Look at what Nehemiah said, Nehemiah 1 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Look at Jeremiah 33. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me and this city shall be to me a name of joy a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. And Jeremiah is helping us to understand this is not a fear driven by punishment. It's a fear driven by the understanding of who God is and what God has done. This is a fear that speaks to the intensity of the saints' love and enjoyment of God. It's an inward and trembling realization of the glory of God. I was talking with my boys in Luke 7 where Jesus raised the widow. What happened there? The crowd was seized with fear. And this fear did what? It led them to glorifying God. Here's what they said when they saw what Jesus did. A great prophet has risen amongst us. God has visited his people. It's a good thing. I appreciate John Piper's assessment of this. He says, fearing God means that God is in your mind and heart, so powerful and so holy and so awesome that you would not dare to run away from him, but only to run to him. Saints, let it be our pursuit every second of the day to think about the power, the holiness, and the awesomeness of our God. Become, with this, become obsessed with this truth and run to him. What a loving act of David. He's like, I want you to see God rightly so that you can respond rightly, fear him, and ultimately exalt him. David continues with his teaching. Look at what he says in verse 12. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? David is presenting what I call the hook. He's trying to hook the interests of the readers with this rhetorical question. And through this question, he's trying to help them to understand how knowing and responding rightly to God will affect their lives. 
Doing that is truly living. Doing that, you'll truly see good. And this is how you will exalt God. And as David continues, he uses verses 13 through 14 to give the reader a vision of the behavior of a person who is knowing God rightly and responding to God rightly. They're going to abstain from evil. They're going to seek good. This is fascinating, right? Verses 13 and 14 is showing you the fruit. And verses 15 through 22 is providing the truths that's going to cultivate that fruit. And so weave throughout 15 through 22 are some specific truths about the character, the qualities, the glory of God. And I want to point out a few. We see God's attentiveness, care, and commitment in verse 15. It says the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Just imagine that, that God has set his love on you. Nothing can happen to you outside of his oversight. I like what one commentator said. He said God's mind is occupied about them. They are not neglected by him. And this is consistent, right, with what we see in our great high priest's thought about this last week. You know how critical we could be of each other in our sins? And you think about our great high priest, right, who was, who's perfect, but what does he do when he sees us in our struggles? He knows and he sympathizes with our struggles. He doesn't just say, get it together. He knew that you would have trials. He knew that you would have trouble. And then he said, approach the throne of grace to receive the help that you need. Saints, run to him. Cry to him. Process your feelings with him. You don't need to have it figured out before you go to him. He already knows. If it doesn't make sense to you, tell him, God, it doesn't make sense to me. Process it with him. And as a reminder of God's attentiveness, his care, and his commitment, we see the righteousness and the power of God on display in verse 16. Verse 16 tells us he's able to cut off the memory of those who do evil. As I reflected on this, I, I said, God, are you saying that there may be an evil person that existed, but we have no memory of them because you have erased all memory of them? That's fascinating. That's a hint of the, the power that God has. And verse 17 tells us he's able to deliver them out of their troubles. And verse 18 conveys God's awareness of the brokenhearted and his ability to bring changes to the situation. Then we get into verse 20. It reminds us of the faithfulness of God. You see, the reuse of the phrase, bones shall not be broken, it, throughout the scriptures it shows a promise-shaped pattern that culminates in Christ. It shows us God's faithfulness in his redemptive plan. He's loyal to his promises. If you look at it, Exodus 12, we see this promise at the Passover, and you shall not break any of its bones. We see the typology in the Psalms, not one of them is broken. And we see this culminate, culminating in Christ and John for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. We see God's faithfulness in this redemptive plan. And as we continue, David is showcasing who God is. 
verses 19 through 20 reminds us of the sovereignty of God. He's the ruler of his creation. He owns everything. Look at verse 19. It tells us that the righteous will experience affliction, but God delivers them. And look at verse 21. The wicked will experience affliction, but that affliction will slay them. That affliction is doing two different things. The Lord oversees affliction and uses it for his purpose and his glory. He does the same thing with condemnation. Look at verse 21. It tells us that those who hate the righteous will be condemned. And then verse 22 tells us that those who take refuge in the Lord will not be condemned. Similar to affliction, we see God's sovereignty on who will be condemned and who will be rescued from that condemnation. David wanted this God to be known. In the psalm, we see David, a person familiar with afflictions, encouraging his readers to remember the salvation of the Lord and to respond to the salvation of God. And like David, we ought to remember the salvation of the Lord. And one way to do this as we think about applications is to choose to, to choose on and meditate, choose to meditate on and pray the gospel each morning. You know, before you do anything else, before you check your emails, before you check your text messages, before you check Voxer, before you check Slack, just choose just like first 10 minutes to, to meditate on. Just pray the gospel each morning. Just think about that. Imagine how that can change the trajectory of your day. Imagine after you pray that, your kids, you hear your kids bickering. Well, the gospel just reminded you that you're also sinful and you needed the power of God to transform you. Therefore, when I see my kids bickering, I could come to the conclusion that they need the power of God to transform them as well. So allow the gospel to permeate your thinking. We also want to make it a habit of responding to the salvation of the Lord. And some ways to do this is to seek to understand the, the characteristics of God displayed in the gospel. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the reason why we offer the gospel. What the gospel does, it's, a, it's like a canvas that showcases all of the attributes of God. You think about it, the power of God. See, without the gospel, if I, if I just hear about the power of God, I would be like the Israelites. No, 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 no. But what I see in the gospel is that through the resurrection of Jesus, that was declaring God's power. So what I could tell then is that, God, you're powerful, but I see that you use that power for me. It's the same thing. We see the sovereignty of God on display in the gospel. God ordained it for Jesus to die while evil men killed it. It was God. It's, you see all of God's attributes. So if you're here and not a Christian, we want to extend for you to look at the gospel and come to know who this God is. Another thing you can do is meditate on these characteristics and exalt God for who he is. Maybe buy a book on the attributes of God and look at it and understand how do I see this attribute in the gospel. Like, be so obsessed and, and vigilant as you read about Jesus. Huh, why did he do that? How did he do that? What? You're seeing the attributes of God on display. 
So as you meditate on these characteristics and exalt God for who he is, be intentional of, of reminding others of who he is. If you're a parent, you may have a desire to see your kids praise and exalt God. But before you do that, it would be helpful to explain who this God is. Tell them about the attributes of God. Tell them what you're learning about the attributes of God. Remind others of who he is. Let's continue to remember and respond to our salvation. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, God, for your power and for your presence, Lord. Thank you, God, that we can taste and see that you are good. Thank you for the way that you have cared for us and the way you have sustained us. I pray, God, for anyone who's having a hard time, a hard week, a hard morning, that, God, that they will pick up their gaze and look to you and be reminded of who you are, be reminded of your commitment to them. God, if there's anyone in here who doesn't know you, doesn't have a relationship with you, God, I ask that you would do that work of removing the veil from their face so that they could see the glory of Christ evidenced in the gospel, Lord. Thank you for hearing us. Thank you for being a great God, an amazing Father. Amen.